WNA Trailblazers is proudly brought to you by Davies Chocolates, makers of handcrafted Australian chocolates since 1932. Now gluten and palm oil free. Visit davieschocolates.com.au and order your selection online for speedy delivery to your door. There's a whole industry that's been built that think that reputation's nothing more than how people perceive you on social media, but it's much more than that. It's how the business owner, the face of the brand, how they turn up to networking meetings and how they present themselves in person. And in fact, even reviews, a bad review isn't the end of the world. It can make you appear more real. That's also creating an impression of your brand and building that reputation. That's brand communication and reputation specialist, Ros Weedman. And this is WNA Trailblazers. WNA Women's Network Australia. Trailblazers. Amplifying the stories of women in business. Hosted by Women's Network Australia CEO Cheryl Gray and Louise Poole, me, managing partner of podcast production company and official Women's Network Australia media partner, Welcome Change Media. Reputation is everything, right? But how often have you thought strategically about how your brand shows up every day to serve others? Ros Weedman has made this her business and poses the question of how good a corporate citizen our businesses really are. It's usually a concept we think about in relation to big business, but small and medium businesses are in a perfect position to make connections in their local communities. So far in these WNA Trailblazers episodes for 2023, we've tackled sort of setting ourselves up for success for the year so far with mentions of personal branding. Roz is a great next step for this because she's about reputation. You know, brand, we hear lots of stuff about brand, don't we? You know, how important it is, what it stands for, how easy it is to destroy. And so Roz has actually written a fantastic book called Enhance Your Reputation. And she's given us not just the theory behind reputation and brand, but actually how to do it. And we explore that in our conversation. So there's lots of tips in this one. Lots of tips, lots of tips. Take notes. Roz, welcome to WNA Trailblazers podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Cheryl. It's really great to be here. I feel like in some ways we have had some parallel paths along our professional journey. And we're going to talk a bit about you and your start in the world of public relations. I feel a bit the same in that I started in journalism and and then ended up some way along the track in public relations. And I also felt that there were some things in PR that needed some process and some structure. And um, I have a feeling that you might have felt the same way. And we'll talk about that a little later. But just tell us how you began your career in public relations. How I fell into it was in the early 1980s. I'd studied psychology because back then there wasn't any real structured courses for public relations as such. But I stepped into a publicity and promotions officer role in the state government. And it kind of flowed from there because I just loved communicating and and using words and wordsmithing. And, you know, after that stint in state government, I moved across to local government where I spent 16 years in a communications management role. And, And really, I joined at the time when there was significant upheaval from there was a government imposed council amalgamation restructure, which saw 270 something councils come down to about 17 nine councils. So everyone had to go for their job again. And there was a thing called compulsory competitive tendering. So 
suddenly all these public sector services had to compete on the open market. So it was a very big time of upheaval for staff, but also it was the time when the internet was coming in. So there's a lot of change and local government's already a dynamic and complex environment because they deliver more than 100 different services to the community every day. So against that backdrop, as a professional communicator, certainly internal communications were critically important as were the external communications and multiple layers of stakeholders that we were dealing with at the time. And then beyond that, I ended up starting my own business in 2011. So for 11 years now, I've consulted to the sector, the local government and and public sector generally, but also I've carved quite a good niche and have a lot of small business and medium-sized business owners as clients as well. So I love that diversity and it just gives me a really fresh approach to my day each day. It's something new, something different. The projects are always exciting and I just love it after all this time. Well, that's the most important thing, isn't it? That you've still got that passion and excitement around what you do. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I'm, I'm a, a fairly high energy person as, as it is. And when you've got that passion for what you do, it just means you can wake up every day and just approach, I guess, each project with that excitement and wanting to achieve the best outcome. And I love working with similar-minded clients who are equally passionate about their brand. And that's when I think the magic happens when you've got two passionate people that work together to create something really special that in the end creates a result that's going to be beneficial not just to them as the client, but to their clients and also to the communities when it comes to public sector organisations. I recall quite vividly that period of local government amalgamation and certainly in the local government sphere, but in government more generally, that sense that internal communication had to be a real skill and a real focus area in the comm space. Prior to that, I'm not sure that there was the same level of focus and profile around the importance of internal comms in any business, really. I think you're right, Cheryl. And interestingly, I think many organisations still, in fact, don't do internal communications as good as they could because there's often a vacuum, I think, in internal communication and things often don't flow from the executive through the various management layers. And this is more particular for bureaucracies, I guess, but I I get a lot of feedback from my clients that, oh, you know, we don't know a lot. We're always kept in the dark. When you think about it, your staff are your brand ambassadors. So it just makes absolute sense that you should be communicating with them first and foremost. And when you look at what Richard Branson does, he treats his staff so well because he knows when he does that, they then take care of the customers. Mm. So, you know, internal communication is where it all starts. And that link, as you say, between what's happening within the organisation but that connection with the customer experience and what's being said outside the organisation. I think sometimes we overlook the importance of that staff part in that equation. Yes. And I think when there's shared purpose and narrative, you've got more possibility of having a united brand and a united voice across an organization rather than a fragmented one. Because, you know, in government, especially where you've got different people, you know, you might have people working in libraries or childcare centers or swimming pools or working in parks or on roads. And If they're all speaking a different narrative about a brand, you can then understand how that might cause confusion or division within a community. Whereas if you've got a very cohesive message within your organization and you communicate well and all staff are on the same page with a shared purpose and values, then there's more likely there's going to be a more united voice coming 
from the brand and therefore a more cohesive and aligned brand reputation that people are building from the inside out. We're going to talk a little bit more about reputation and how important it is in the moment, but I just want to understand your journey in terms of that switch from having worked in local government to then working effectively for government and running your own business. What were the challenges that you came across in running your own business that perhaps you hadn't anticipated before? It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you move from being an employee to being self-employed, it's just wonderful in the sense that your own boss. But at the start, you're really a one-person band and you're doing everything. You know, it's like the rocket ship trying to launch. It takes a long time for the rocket ship to actually launch because you're doing lots of things. You're doing your marketing, your sales, your bookkeeping, you're finding work, and there's lots of things that you don't know. So, it takes a bit of time before that rocket ship can actually launch. And So what I did to address a lot of the challenges that I was facing was invested heavily in my own learning in terms of I engaged very specific business coaches. I had a business coach around sales, a business coach for marketing, one for mindset, and also how to actually grow my business and also one for finance. So I think you've just got to have that growth mindset that you're always curious, you're always learning. There's always something to know. Everything's always a work in progress, you know, fail forward, fail fast don't define success by profitability necessarily, but more by incremental growth, you know, year on year, you know, you might be doing similar things, but then you change and there's plateaus and then there's breakthroughs. And that's part of the fun of running a business though, really. Yeah. And we all know that COVID threw some (laughs) real challenges for, well, for everyone, but particularly for a lot of businesses, particularly small businesses. How did you cope through that COVID period? Well, I was extremely lucky, Cheryl. And as I said before, because I have two distinct client bases, I have government and I have private sector. And at the time when COVID hit, quite rightly, my small business and medium-sized businesses couldn't really do marketing anymore or PR because they felt that they needed to just, you know, they were trying to just stay afloat. You know, a lot of businesses went down, a lot of employees lost their job. And so marketing is seen more discretionary. So I was lucky enough though to have my government clients where I had, you know, in train a number of projects already and those projects continued. So if I didn't have that diversity of client base, I could have well suffered a lot more than I did. But in fact, my business maintained its profitability and in fact grew a little bit. So I was lucky. Fantastic. So your rocket Mm. ship was really taking off? even though it was going through some clouds? Well, it it was. And and look, we were all going through the same changes, you know, and and I think there was a lot of empathy for just trying, everyone was just trying to work out how to do things. How how do we suddenly shift and become, you know, how do we suddenly have all these meetings on Zoom when, you know, but as it's turned out, you know, that's what we've now embraced. And I saved so much time from not having to travel anymore where I'd be doing hours just going an hour to one meeting for an hour and then an hour back again to the office. And so now productivity-wise, I get so much more done. Yeah, and I think I've got an extra five years' life out of my car too. (laughs) So let's just talk about reputation and we must say that you are also the author of a book, Mm. Enhance Your Reputation, How to Build a Brand People Want to Work For, Buy From and Invest In. And I love the subtitle of your book because we do hear a lot about reputation but sort of the sense that, yeah, reputation is important because it's important but you've taken it that step further. It's not just important because it's a good to have. It's about using reputation 
reputation and your brand for exactly those reasons. Having and attracting good people, buying and selling, and ultimately having a business that the people want to be part of and even invest in. That was obviously a deliberate thing on your part and obviously drawing on some experiences uh, over your time um, looking into businesses. For sure. And I think with a lot of business owners, they grapple with reputation because it's intangible. And so in a way, they just kind of either take it for granted or don't do much about it or forget about it. But when you think about it, you know, I have this saying that revenue follows reputation because quite simply, a good reputation is good for business and a bad reputation isn't good for business. And when you look at the research, it really does show that having a strong positive reputation has many benefits, including things like the ability to attract and retain the best staff, higher perceived value. So, you know, you've got greater ability to charge more premium prices if you so choose to and greater customer loyalty, better ability to negotiate financial terms. And interestingly, those brands with a great reputation have a greater likelihood of being given the benefit of the doubt in times of crisis. And we know Mm. at the moment, there's a lot of crisis and issues management going along for businesses with all these cyber attacks and trust issues for business. So building a great reputation is not really negotiable anymore, but there are some criteria that you need to meet because of the current marketplace has changed a lot in order to build that desirable brand reputation that people are looking for. Is there a difference between reputation and brand? Oh, for sure. They're inextricably linked, but they're not the same. And so while customers and the general public would see brand and reputation as the same kind of thing, but it's very important that a business owner understands the distinction between the two. So a brand is a conscious decision by a person or an organization to distinguish itself or its products or its services in the marketplace. So it's the very intentional projection of an image, the crafted narratives and value propositions and those designed elements like your logo and your colors and your symbols and your shapes. They're all projections. They've all been created and crafted. Whereas reputation, on the other hand, is what people think and feel about that brand. So reputation is individual perception. The issue is, though, that when you don't take care of your brand, what you end up is a fragmented reputation. So we have very expansive digital footprints now. And when someone goes to Google your business name or even your personal name, depending on how you show up, could either cause confusion in the mind of the person researching you, or in fact, it could cause cohesion in the mind to say, oh, well, I really get them. I understand what they stand for. Whereas if you haven't taken care of your brand because you just let it kind of take care of itself, then I think it's around 90% of people now Google a brand before they even pick up the phone to find out about you. So it makes really good sense to be quite intentional as well as consistent and aligned about what you're doing in regard to your brand because that's building the perception. So reputation resides in the minds of others and that's what you need to understand when you're a business owner. But everything that you do in the name of your brand is a reputation-defining moment. So the decisions and choices and language you use and the behaviour all goes into how people are perceiving you. Has the digital world made it easier or more challenging for businesses, particularly smaller businesses, to be able to build and manage their reputation and brand? It can be a double-edged sword, really, I think, I mean, once upon a time you'd take an ad in the local paper and all was good. You know, you put something in someone's letterbox and... Woohoo, job done. But 
there is so much more to it. And there's never been an easier time than right now to start a business as well using the internet because you can start and fail really quickly and then just start another one. Because there's certainly no denying that the internet is wonderful for building brand awareness and for getting your message out there and to build a following. And that's got to be good for business. But on the flip side, if you're not being intentional about the brand footprint you're cultivating, then there could be a real disconnect between the reputation you think you're building, but what's really happening in reality. It's about being intentional and it's about cultivating something that engages people with, you know, when you think about the media cycle now being global online 24-7, you can't just put out stuff for mass communication. It's really about being highly targeted to different audiences and different channels because when you can think about the proliferation of social media challenges out there, you know, information needs to be highly visually engaging. Your content needs to be short and sharp and have calls to action and have a hook and all business owners need to have a content strategy around using and embracing social media because in 20, 30 years ago, when the local newspaper was more relevant, that was fine to put an ad or a editorial, you know, editorial in, but not now. You need to embrace an integrated approach that includes social media, but not social media of an unto itself. It's part of an integrated strategic approach because I think you still need to recognize that people consume information from different sources. So I think it would be a mistake just to use social media to build your brand. Yeah, I love that, the distinction between brand awareness versus reputation. And I know you talk about it in the book, how very quickly you can undo a reputation by not delivering on the brand promise. Mm. Oh, that's for sure. And I guess that's where those crisis and issues management scenarios come into play often. Yeah. Well, look, that's that's true. And unfortunately, because of this, you see a lot of, well, I use an in inverted commas, reputation management companies out there that think reputation management is about burying bad reviews. It's not about that. Reputation management is about proactive public relations and marketing, basically. And so I think there's a whole industry that's been built that think that reputation's nothing more than how people perceive you on social media, but it's much more than that. It's how the business owner, the face of the brand, how they turn up to networking meetings and how they present themselves in person. That's also creating an impression of your brand and building that reputation. And the other thing we've got to think about is that there's a real blur now between business brands and people's personal life on the internet. When they Google you, it's going to come up your business, what you're saying in a business sense and also what you're saying in a personal sense. So if they're not congruent or if you seem to be saying one thing in one platform but something else on another, then again, you're doing a disservice to your brand and your reputation. And really, as consumers, we're pretty clever. We can pick the holes in what a brand might be wanting us to believe and what we're actually seeing. Absolutely. I think people's BS radars are really well honed (laughs) nowadays and people are getting called out. Even if you consider the current example with the ACCC cracking down on what they call greenwashing, which is where some brands are pretending to or purporting to be aligned with environmentally friendly aspects of their business just to be able to attract followers and things like that, but then showing that operationally they're not really doing that at all. And so, you know, there's hefty fines for that. And people 
see through what's disingenuous. There's this whole thing around authenticity now and vulnerability. Some of those words have become into our vernacular because people are sick of brands projecting an image that's not really true. So I think when it comes to brand building and reputation defining, then you need to think, well, what's authentic to my brand? Because it's it's like when someone tells a little white lie and then they dig a bigger hole for themselves, they've got to keep remembering what they've said to keep covering themselves. But if you just start off being full of integrity, being open and honest and apologizing if you need to, or dealing with customer complaints in a proactive manner, don't just let things go under the carpet. And in fact, even reviews, a bad review isn't the end of the world. In fact, it can make you appear more real. So realness and truth is really important part of building credibility. Now, you've brought all of this together in what you call the brand method and it includes culture, it includes communications, it obviously includes customer, but it also includes citizenship. And you might want to run through the four elements, but I'm particularly interested in the inclusion of citizenship in your approach to building a credible brand. Yeah, sure. It's Mm. a strategic approach to brand communication and reputation management, and it aligns the four organizational dimensions of culture, which is what an organization thinks, its communications, which is what it says, its customer experience, which is what it does, and its corporate citizenship, which is what it gives. And that's because more and more people want brands to stand for more than just profit, more than just their products and services. And corporate social responsibility or ESG is becoming more mainstream, which is great. But when you look at the research, purpose and values, and I'm talking a higher purpose beyond just profit, are really driving choice and decision-making when it comes to buying and working because people do want brands to stand for more than just selling a product. And the research by PricewaterhouseCoopers found that Gen Z and millennials are 5.3 times more likely to stay with an employer when they have a strong connection to their employer's purpose. And other research I've read clearly shows that when companies can aspire or have an aspirational purpose that benefits society in some ways, they have more loyal customers and more engaged employees. And when you think about it, when employees wake up every day and think, well, I'm going to work today to make more widgets, that's maybe not that inspiring. But when you wake up and you think, well, I'm going to work today because I'm, I'm really excited about this, this higher purpose, that this, this contribution that, I'm, that my hard-earned time and energy and, and knowledge and expertise is contributing towards um, some kind of legacy, I think is much, more, is much more exciting and I think gets people's passions going. And people are making definite decisions to work for brands where they have that alignment. So it's really important that businesses can embrace corporate citizenship as well, which is that kind of extra step. Because I think when you think about it, culture, communications and customer experience, those three dimensions are not negotiable. But corporate citizenship is something that's gaining momentum more and more. And I'm passionate about helping brands embrace that. I think you're absolutely right. I wonder if a lot of smaller businesses are challenged to add that fourth dimension to what they do. When you've got the cash flow, when you've got the money and resources to say, hey, let's do something good and you can put 
resources to it. That's one thing. How can small businesses apply that sense of the fourth dimension, the citizenship dimension to what they do? And maybe you can give us some examples. Sure. So we may be aware of some big name brands that are doing some great things around corporate citizenship and things like Patagonia. You know, we're all kind of aware of those big brands, but I'm really aware of a lot of small businesses that are, while they're delivering a great service, they're also making a positive difference even in their local communities and beyond. Corporate citizenship is simply about thinking bigger picture and how you can maybe make connections with your local community. It might be through some pro bono work where you might take on some new graduates under your wing. It might be sponsoring a local footy team or it might be doing some workshops. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to spend money, but I think the first step is to embrace a public spirit and then understand, well, how can our brand bring that to life for our employees and make connections in the community? And some of the local businesses I know, for example, a local painting business I know, (laughs) it's a women-owned painting business and they're fantastic at doing painting, but you know they've got a higher purpose of trailblazing, helping empower other women to start a business in the trade industries, which has been a male-dominated area for a long time. And their owner goes out and she speaks to school groups and helps to let young women know that anything is possible. You just have to have that mindset. And they've embraced that message through their brand that you go on their website. They're not just talking about we paint your house or paint your office, but they lead. They lead with their higher purpose, which is to empower women to get out there and give it a crack in a male-dominated industry because anything is possible. It doesn't have to be about sponsorship or spending lots of money at all. It's simply about building relationships and understanding that you're part of a community ecosystem. And when everyone comes together, you know, everyone can thrive. Also, there are things like a lot of brands become a B Corp brand or some of them, the B1, G1 initiative is another thing where a small business can register itself and pick from one of 500 different ways where they may contribute, for example, 1% of their profits to a worthy cause globally. I know some companies that do that. Then you've got the 17 sustainable development goals. You know, you can simply align your brand with one of those. Mm. Um There's so many ways that you can embrace this fourth dimension of corporate social responsibility that I think it just requires a mindset, though, to think, well, how can we, you know, and let's do that because it's so empowering. Yeah, look, I think, too, part of it is for small businesses to think about what they have to offer to their community, to charities. It doesn't always need to be money. It can be time. It can be in-kind support, you know. Your example of the painting company, I bet you there's community organisations out there whose facility would certainly benefit from a lick of paint. And so even just giving back in the, look, this is what we do, we can do it for them, essentially pro bono opportunities to share knowledge, resources and opportunities is another great way for small businesses to connect. And of course, volunteering. I think there's so much opportunity with volunteering. And I know organisations I've worked for where we've had groups of staff volunteers going out, could be a day planting trees with a community group or a school, or it might be going to an animal farm and helping with the feeding regime or whatever it is. And the collective, the doing good part has this amazing way of releasing those positive hormones, you know, those endorphins that that connect people. 
and and they go back to their workplace with with more camaraderie and and it's a great story and there's something for internal communication isn't it you know volunteering there's just so much scope for volunteering that doesn't have to involve the transfer of any money at all it's just goodwill and it's an intention for public spirit so i think that's a definite way to go if a brand or a business owner who might be listening to this and is thinking, yeah, I probably haven't quite got my reputation, my business reputation, my brand reputation quite where I want it to be. Where should they start? Okay. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it kind of all starts with culture, purpose and values are now driving people's choices and decisions. And when you think about purpose and values, they are part of the cultural pillars that a business owner would articulate. And I think just like the foundations of a house, the elements of culture, which is shared purpose, beliefs and values, they're the pillars of an organisation and they tend to galvanise the employee mindsets to achieve the business objectives. And, you know, a positive culture has been shown to influence employee morale, productivity and retention, that also that collective mindset that culture nurtures can have a direct bearing on the customer experience and ultimately defining the company brand and reputation. So I would definitely suggest that any business owner that is busy doing their thing, selling products and services, which is great, but step back and start asking some questions around what the brand stands for. You know, what is the higher purpose or the just cause that we can connect our brand with? Getting clear on those values and more than just getting clear on the values, translating those values into behaviours statements. So if we say we value customer service, what does that mean for us as a brand? How would that play out at the coalface? Because customer service is a broad term and would mean different things to different people. So I think it's important that once you talk about your culture pillars, there's a shared understanding so that you start to get that consistency of customer experience across touch points and whether it's by phone or whether it's in person, but it all starts with culture and getting clear on your your purpose and your shared beliefs and values. Hence how the model all fits together. (laughs) Well, that's right. Fantastic. And you've also been incredibly generous in your book by including, I guess, a bit of a template to building brand credibility and questions to ask yourself and how to put together that sense of having a very clear brand manifesto, I think you called it. So if you have a chance to read Roz's book or obtain a copy, go to rosweedman.com and you can get a very handy guide that's not only insightful but practical in terms of working with your brand and really building that reputation into something that ultimately adds value not only to your community but to your business. So thanks for your time, Roz. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. It's been wonderful to share something I'm so passionate about. I really thank you for the opportunity to be able to share my message today. Those are some fantastic tips from Roz that she gave us. I mean, it's so true, isn't it? As customers and employees, we just expect more from our businesses these days, don't we? We absolutely do. And look, I think what Roz has also done is relate that model around the reputation model that she's written about, not just a big corporations and big companies, but to small business as well. And I know I suddenly started to think about what more could we do as a business to give back in ways that are meaningful, not just to the community or to an organisation, but really meaningful to us as individuals as well. Because, you know, getting that buzz out of doing something for someone else is is really important to build a great organisational culture, no matter how big or small your business is. Mm. How can we get in touch with Roz? Her website is rosweedman.com. 
and you'll find an excellent book to purchase from her website that's Enhance Your Reputation, How to Build a Brand People Want to Work For buy from and invest in. And that book is the one that's filled with all of those practical tips. It's really a template to build a reputation strategy. Yeah, it's a really great resource. And I'm sure we'll be employing some of those on womensnetwork.com.au as we build our reputation and um, our relationships. Well, you know, I hope we already do a lot of that stuff, but absolutely. Yep. We will be going through Roz's advice with a fine tooth comb, Louise. And it's a good place to connect with us if you have any ideas for future guests the podcast too. Absolutely. Reach out through womensnetwork.com.au or on our social media platforms. Next time on WNA Trailblazers, we'll hear the incredible story of aviation training specialist Adrian Fleming and how she became a pilot despite all the odds stacked against her. There's always a possibility, whether I act on it and go and follow that possibility, but I think it's exciting looking at what possibilities are. And so when you're looking, when you're sitting in that negative space, it doesn't feel good and there's no point. I mentioned about flipping a coin, you know, there's always just flip the coin to the other side. If you don't like it, turn it over. Women's Network Australia is a business network for women that's been around for over 30 years. And like Women's Network Australia, Davies Chocolates has a proud history and a love of innovation. Davies Chocolates has been making handcrafted chocolates since 1932. And the chocolate making traditions of the past have been mixed with the needs of today. With all your favourites now made with delicious gluten-free and palm oil-free gourmet chocolate. Visit davieschocolates.com.au and order your selection online for speedy delivery to your door. Davies Chocolates are a proud sponsor of WNA Trailblazers. Do you know a trailblazing woman in business whose story needs to be amplified? Let us know. Drop us a line on the contact us page at womensnetwork.com.au. Thinking about making your own podcast? Welcome Change Media would love to help. Visit welcomechangemedia.com.au. WNA Trailblazers is a Welcome Change Media production.